Welcome to episode number nine of The Funding Coach. My name is Don Gooding, and I'm the founder of Four Colors of Money for Entrepreneurs, a blog, podcast, training videos, and other resources, all designed to help you figure out what's the right mix of bootstrapping, grants, loans, and equity, and especially figure out what you should be doing now to get the right color of money for you. Here on The Funding Coach, I help real businesses with real funding problems so that you can figure out how to start and grow your business. In this episode, I interview Margot Walsh, founder and CEO of MainWorks, a company that has combined the pursuit of revenue with the pursuit of making the world a better place. They've been around for a while, and they've received lots of awards as a business. But now, Margot is trying to figure out how to grow beyond their main footprint. I hope you enjoy the interview. Margot Walsh of MainWorks, welcome to The Funding Coach. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Don. So let's start off with just a little bit about your background. What were you doing prior to starting MainWorks? When I graduated from college, Don, I went into college and MBA recruiting within the banking world and started at Bankers Trust, which is a a bank that was um, merged into Deutsche Bank over the years. And from Bankers Trust, I went to Goldman Sachs, where I worked in the uh, investment banking division doing college and MBA-level recruiting. So my connection to this world has always been in my ability as a connector of people. Um, I find it really easy to meet many, many people and then decide very quickly who belongs where. So in 2011, out of my own personal recovery story and recently divorced, I really, and a son at home who has a disability that I needed to be home to parent very intentionally, um, I started a company and thought I could find work for an underserved population that I was working with at the Cumberland County Jail. So that's how I started MainWorks. And it was out of a moment where I didn't really have time to pursue all of the um, social employment models that existed. I just wanted to start a temp agency because I knew you could actually impact your, um, it, it was quite a, a good economic out, outcome um, if you manage your expenses well, you could do quite well as a staffing company. So now we're in 2018. What does MainWorks look like now in terms of its services, clients, uh, revenue, that sort of thing? So it's kind of the dream revenue uh, trajectory because in 2012, which was my first real year, 2011, we incorporated actually, um, although I had started casting around, getting my business plan together with the help of SCORE, by the way, which was outstanding. Absolutely. It was wonderful. Really. And and I met you, which was wonderful, um, just to kind of run ideas and that kind of thing. So in 2012 was our first real year on paper. And our income in that year was 250,000. And then our income in 2017 was 2.5 million. Wow. Tenfold growth. That's terrific. Thank you. And my um, optimism is that there is an endless supply and, and an even more burdensome demand in this shortage at the uh, labor level in the job market. So because of our position where we deal with a lot of underserved populations, 
and because I work within the construction industry for the most part, um, we are having a really interesting opportunity in this moment to work with two very disparate communities. The industrial construction sector is not entirely well known for their social impact. So um, I, I've loved being part of that. And there again is that connector. And I see the need for main works very clearly, but I also see our ability to influence prison reform, sentencing reform, drug court, pretrial programs, and then this opioid epidemic, which is incredibly devourous. Margot, I'm wondering if you could just step back for just a second for the listeners who don't really know what Maine Works does and just describe in the, the simple terms what you're doing. Sure. So in simple terms, we are a for-profit staffing company with this social mission. And our social mission is to employ people who are in early recovery from substance use disorder and reentry from jail and prison. We also deal with some veterans who struggle with both of those issues. And we put them in jobs in industrial construction and landscaping and labor sector for the most part. So you're kind of like, uh, there are lots of other employment agencies out there who, as I understand it, get some percentage of the wages from the employers who are trying to find qualified employment. Is that generally the revenue model? Exactly. If you were to put a guy out to make $10 an hour, you would charge your client 20 and that sounds like a terrific business. Um, the burden is when Mainworks decided to start doing a lot more altruistic things like providing people the things that they needed to get to work, which became the rationale for a nonprofit that was established called Maine Recovery Fund in May of 2017. I want to come back to that nonprofit because I think that's really interesting, but I want to cover just a couple other things. So going back to the very earliest days, is an employment agency the kind of business that generally doesn't require a lot of upfront capital to get started? Were you able to essentially bootstrap it with a, not a whole lot of your own money? Bootstrapping it, Dom, with the kindness of some of my friends who were able to lend me enough money to cover the first four or five payrolls, which began to grow pretty quickly in the early stages. And then you have other you know, normal business expenses, including insurances and rent and all of that once you start to form a company. Got it. So it was a classic friends and family loans to get you up off the ground. Yeah. Although I, I really was quite self-reliant and insisted on being so, and I remain that way to this day, which is challenging as we grow really quickly. Yeah. Now, also along the way, it wasn't too long before you decided to go out and get yourself certified as a B Corporation. I think that was December 2013. So really the end of your second year of operations. And as I've heard it described by others, it's a pretty rigorous process. So I'm wondering if you could just walk me through both your thinking about it and what the process has been like, and then what kind of benefits you've received by, by I guess, being certified as a B-benefit corporation. Thanks for asking that question, Don, because it's really important to me to be released in June. We have just been recognized the second year in a row as one of the top 10% of B Corps internationally. So we feel that our impact socially is really what resonates. B Corp is a process that I discovered accidentally because I was researching, as, as people do, watched a lot of TED Talks. 
about business. And I discovered J. Cohen Gilbert back then. Um, and he was talking about fundamentally changing capitalism and that it was not sustainable in its current way and that we needed to provide a way to help the um, government and nonprofits do the work that they needed to do with the help of the private sector. And just as a slight digression, Patagonia is one of the premier and uh, first B Corps where Yvonne Chouinard from Maine decided that he would take 1% of his profits and donate those 1% to the planet. So there were a lot of really fantastic initiatives taking place out of this idea that you can use a corporate structure for social and environmental impact. Very interesting. So because you had the social mission from the beginning, but you also wanted to be a for-profit corporation, sounds like that was a great fit for you. And can you just elaborate a little bit on your thinking of why you went the for-profit versus the non-profit route? Oh, I know the answer to that definitively. And it was that as a single mom, head of household, I needed to do something that would quickly start to demonstrate some revenue and profit for my own, keeping my life together at that time. And a nonprofit runway is a lot longer because you have to put a board together and all of the rigors of a nonprofit. So I thought if I could do this work and forego maximizing profits a little bit in order to invest in this population, that that would be perfect. And then lo and behold, that is what B Corps do. And when I first started uh, looking into B Corp back in 2012, as you mentioned, I was a much smaller company, so it was very easy to provide the data and metrics to measure our success and impact. Now that we get bigger, one of our primary fundraising goals is to implement systems that will better measure our impact so that I can provide that same information to B Corp times you know, 50. Got it. So you mentioned that you had formed a nonprofit a little while ago. Can you talk about what you're trying to do with that nonprofit? There are three primary buckets for our nonprofit. Once someone is demonstrates that they are able to show up for work, whether it's Mainworks or anywhere else, we will provide them with a free and well-insured taxi ride to work and back. That's a daunting barrier for many people, especially in Maine, because everything outside of walking distance in Portland is a car ride, and a car is a luxury item. So the first bucket of the Maine Recovery Fund is a ride to work. The second is outerwear, gear, proper new insulated jackets for winter, steel-toed work boots, jeans, work pants, they need all of that. And then the third, which I love the most, is the kind of quote, now what? Now that I have my life together, I'm starting to show signs of economic viability. What am I going to do with my life now? And so we help with college, uh, navigating artwork, art world and, and music and other um, nonprofits that are doing interesting stuff. I try to create community now that these guys are showing signs of life, frankly. It sounds like you saw a need that, you know, just like perhaps with a a new business, somebody who's just starting out doesn't have some of the the basic things. So you're kind of helping them to bootstrap themselves back into their new life. That's got to be challenging, though, to figure out, on the one hand, you've got to go look for customers, the construction companies and others who are going to hire your clients. 
But then on the other hand, you have to go solicit donors uh, to help the clients out from the other side. How have you been able to manage that? Well, I grew up in Maine, and I happen to know a lot of people in Maine. And so it's just been an aggressive word of mouth campaign, quite honestly. And I am extremely involved in a lot of organizations that are in the, the construction industry for one one area particularly. I'm quite involved with the nonprofit sector in the state of Maine. I'm involved in a lot of entrepreneur groups within the state of Maine. So it, it has to do with being committed to meeting everybody. And it's, it is exhausting. But, and to your point, Don, when I was at Goldman Sachs, I started a company, a little uh, organization within the company called Business Basics. And it was really, well, now that you've got this great job and the opportunity of a lifetime, what are you going to do to make sure you don't screw that up? So that's basically what the main recovery fund is offering to a group of guys who did not have that golden opportunity. I, I find it a little bit amusing that, you know, you're taking the principles that you applied to Goldman Sachs bankers and applying them to people who have been released from prison. And yeah, just wondering whether there's any overlap between those two, two groups. But we'll leave that for another day, maybe. Okay. Well, I will, I would like to say, though, and, and this is something I said yesterday, every morning we gather in a circle. Mm. All of the guys who work at Mainworks gather at a fire in the middle of Portland, and we talk about basic principles and, and guiding um, ideas. And I referred to Goldman Sachs as having a ethos that is referred to as the one firm firm. And it was quite literally, everybody in that company is equally valued. And there's an unbelievable retention there because once you're in, it's absolutely like being part of a club and there's an alumni network. And so I'm trying to invoke that same sense of loyalty within Mainworks. Well, that's pretty amazing. It's, it's building for a great long term. This episode of The Funding Coach is sponsored by Branding Compass. Now, you probably know that building a brand is important, but you don't have tens of thousands of dollars to pay a branding company. That's why the interactive online tool Branding Compass was created for companies just like yours. It's like working with an award-winning branding firm, but for a fraction of the price. Branding Compass walks you through the questions that a branding firm would typically ask. And if you need some help along the way with some of those questions, well, Branding Compass includes a course to help you build a stronger brand. The system provides automated expert advice so you get really useful output from the process including recommendations for a color palette, typefaces and imagery, as well as a unique value proposition and even an ideal customer profile. And that's just for the basic version of Branding Compass. If you need more help, you can get it. I was a beta customer for Branding Compass, and I found it extremely useful even back at that beta stage. You can see my customer testimonial at brandingcompass.com. And while you're there, sign up for the Branding Compass and use the coupon code THEFUNDINGCOACH, all one word, all lowercase, to save $10 on the right licensing option for you. As you're thinking about the long-term 
what would you like to see the growth trajectory be either within Maine or or elsewhere, since this is a need I would imagine that uh, exists probably all over the United States, if not other places as well? If we were selling cheeseburgers, I could franchise this very easily because there's a formula that you, you know, look at Shake Shack or McDonald's. When you're talking about people in a messy, messy environment, such as substance use disorder, it's very hard to establish who you really are and what are the primary goals and responsibilities in order to franchise. So what I'd like to do is invite people from other states to come here and train for three or four months so they can become really indoctrinated into what it looks like. We already have USA Works Incorporated. And the intention then is to have a training model here, come to Portland, Maine, learn what, you know, making sure, first of all, that they, that their um, particular communities meet certain criteria mm-hmm. and then they would come here and train. And then we would participate in the kind of spoken wheel model. Got it. So that's, that's a pretty big vision. And have you gone through the exercise yet of trying to figure out what kind of funding, you know, order of magnitude you might need in, in order to pull that off? I would imagine, for example, you're going to need to develop some of those training materials and maybe some other things as well. John, this is exactly where we are in this moment that I'm talking to you today is just unbelievable because for the first time in my years of doing this, I have thought maybe it's time to bring in some investors. And then in order to do that, you have to be able to articulate you know, what exactly would they be investing in and what are the projections? We have done all of those financial projections naturally, locally predicated on just main works. But one of our goals for 2018 is New Hampshire works, which is very low in, low cost because of its proximity. Mm-hmm. Look at where we're going from here. I've gone back to SCORE and my dear friend, John Pavin, who is just a great consultant to say, okay, how do we do what you just said? <laughs> So it's coming. It's coming. Yes. I would imagine as you're looking at the investment landscape, the challenge is going to be, well, multiple. You know, first of all, it's hard to raise equity in almost any kind of company, but you have a social mission, uh, which you absolutely need to stay true to. It sounds like you've also chosen as part of the, the business model to do perhaps a lower profit margin business than perhaps uh, you otherwise could be, perhaps in a more conventional employment business. But then there's also this question of scalability and then trying to find uh, compatible equity investors who buy into your social mission. Is is that some of the issues that you're trying to get your head around now? And and Don, I will refer to a model. I was um, one of our replication early replication initiatives, which will probably follow through with next year, is for for lots of reasons that the West, Mountain West. And when I went to Colorado, my son went to University of Denver, and he's going to come back and help us out, which is really exciting from his year in China. But I was spending time in Denver. They have what's called Colorado Impact Day, where they bring all of the impact investors together with the companies that are interested in scaling. And I think that that's a model we should pursue immediately in Maine. You are the closest person that I've talked to in my years in Maine that really has been trying to put some shape around that. I, mean, I might turn the table and ask you about it. However, to, to take it one step further, I really think that Maine 
is a unique petri dish. I guess I don't know how to say that in another way. That just says we are, um, you know, an incubator for business ideas for the Northeast. And I think we have a fantastic community of people who are really engaged and understand social impact work. So I think if we could find the uh, people with the financial backgrounds to support this, we could have a really robust startup community, as we already do on the tech side. Well, I think part of what I'd like to do to help you out, Margot, is to dig a little bit deeper into what I know about uh, impact investing. I know it's an emerging field, uh, but as with all emerging fields, there are still a lot of rough edges. And I think there are various players trying to figure out what is the the right way to do impact investing because it's almost like angel investing. I often talk about how the angel's part of the brain, uh, which is trying to be you know good for the world, but then there's the investor side of the brain that's trying to get a return. I would imagine that impact investors also have uh, that dynamic tension between trying to have an impact and trying to uh, make some kind of return. I think what I'd like to do is is tap into a bunch of people who are involved to some extent in that field. And in particular, I'm intrigued with the idea that B corporations and, and the whole B certification process is extremely rigorous in terms of its measurement of impact. And it seems like uh, the impact investors ought to be looking at uh, the list of those who are in the top 10% as you are and saying, hey, maybe we should be directing some of our funds that way. It's not unlike when the Inc. 5000 comes out every year of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S. There are a lot of private equity companies who look at that list and start dialing for dollars to find uh, potential companies that are growing fast, that could use some capital for expansion. So I think that will probably be my primary focus in trying to help you because it sounds like your core business is going well. Would you agree with that? I would agree. And then with the nonprofit, that's a partner, but that we, you know, we have to consider IRS guidelines that hold those two organizations as disparate naturally. Absolutely. It's been very helpful because I couldn't really explain to the bank why I was buying Carhartt coats. They thought that seemed like um, an employee benefit that wasn't really <laughs> that they were interested in funding as a as a bank. So there's a I think there's a lot of opportunity here, and um, I fully agree with you. And and on um, wherever there is the word investing, naturally people are expecting a return of some degree. And I I am I'm only interested in in the end, being able to support myself and my life and my family and the rising tides lifts all boats. So hopefully all these guys will launch and become more successful and move from tax burden to taxpayer. So you've got a lot of really positive things happening here. Um, I think that you're right. And I really appreciate your bringing the attention to the fact that this is nascent and we are in this place right now. We want to try to figure it out because I was at the um, main philanthropy day on, on Friday, I actually gave a talk about B Corp. And it was really exciting. However, when you're in a room full of people who have to raise money to keep the doors open, the focus becomes so myopic on keeping the doors open that it's hard to consider 
the broader, they have to really balance that. And my hat's off to nonprofits in the state. As is mine, I actually left uh, a job running a nonprofit because I realized when our big uh, funder was no longer around that I wasn't particularly great on the nonprofit side of fundraising. So I'm I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to be helpful to you there. Right. So that's, but I feel that the reason that B Corps are so successful and have such huge potential, as you mentioned, like the Inc. crowd, frankly, is because we have accepted the fact that the nonprofits and government cannot solve these burgeoning social issues. Um, and there's a huge replication and scaling opportunity here. And we're really excited about our you know, very near-term future. Uh, one other quick question uh, before we wrap it up, actually, maybe two. So have you done any crowdfunding or considered that as a possibility to try to tap into funders from perhaps unconventional sources? Not, not really. I haven't exhausted my private associations, and I was really white-knuckling it, thinking that I could just pull this through with the bank. But the bank is antithetical to growth without really specific collateral. And as a single mom, you know, I didn't really have a house in the Hamptons yet. I certainly understand that. I think as part of this process, too, uh, I'll want to take a look at your financials and understand your financial model. Uh, One of the interesting things that you may be able to draw upon from the world of software as a service is the emphasis on retaining clients and the increase in profitability of your business uh, as you retain these clients. Because it sounds like you've got great customer service. So there may be an interesting story to tell uh, in your numbers if you look at them from just a slightly different angle. And that may be a new way to appeal to potential investors. John, what you're saying is so helpful. And to anybody that might be listening, I feel that what is really important here is that an entrepreneur is usually antithetical to that financial process you just mentioned. And an entrepreneur is busy running and the wheels are spinning and the marbles are all over the kitchen floor, which I love that process. But someone that brings the financial discipline and says, okay, now that you've seeing what's been successful as you've developed this product or business, now we have to run it through these very specific financial models as you just referred to. And we're at that, we've just come into that place where we're looking at every single line item and the expenses. So now I feel like Don, seven years later that I actually can sit down with you with confidence and say, here are our strengths and shortcomings from a financial standpoint. And it took a long time to get there because as a single entrepreneur, I really had no business opening a business to begin with. Well, you know, you're not at all unusual in that regard, Margot. I've talked to many entrepreneurs who take a while. I did an interview with uh, someone else who, after 11 years, is now at the point of saying, hey, I think I can take this business that I started off myself, didn't know exactly what I was doing, And now it looks like it's time to try to scale it. It's something I've been calling the funding pivot. You know, you're basically trying to pivot from, in your case, a mix of friends and family and a little bit of bank debt and a lot of bootstrapping to perhaps some kind of funding to help you scale both the impact and the, the financial side of the business. 
So are there any other issues or questions that we haven't talked about so far that I might be able to be helpful on? So, Don, I think you have discovered the, that pivot funding is the imperative and that it, is, it describes exactly where we are because I could kind of keep, my, um, keep close to my own knitting and, and do what we do and continue to kind of just chug along. But if we are really interested, it's a perfect storm, frankly, for my business, because we are in a uh, confluence of pandemic drug use, which when people get ready to get out of that, they have to have something to do that will develop economic viability for them as a person. Um, And we also have a labor shortage of epic size at this moment. And so traditionally, there's a supply and demand. So the only reason I'm putting on the brakes is because of lack of funding. And that just seems wrong to me. So if there, but there's not enough time in the day for me to go out and try to court people and explain it. And, you know, that's, so for someone like you to have that consultative role to say, look, and I'm going to be the connector. See, again, I rely on connectors to connect. That's what I've always done myself. So to be able to find a strategic partner that would say, now let's, let's um, make sure we've got our eyes crossed, our eyes dotted and our T's crossed. Off we go. Let's find this next pivot funding. I want to put a box around what I'm able to do. My friends in securities uh, law practices would encourage me to say that I am not a registered broker dealer with the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission. And so it does, in fact, limit me from being able to do things like this connecting specifically because that's something that a licensed broker-dealer has to do. And so if any of you listeners have just some informal friends who say, yeah, I can make some connections for investment and then they want to get paid, that's something to be very careful about because that's something the SEC cares a lot about. And so I do too. But I think I can still be uh, helpful and talk to some of the other consultants. You mentioned John Paven, who I also know. And together, I think we'll be able to put together something that will make sense and get you on that upward trajectory and and grow that uh, vision and and really importantly, change the lives of lots more people. I couldn't have said it better myself, Don. And I love what you're doing. And the fact that you're bringing this, you know, bringing attention to these issues is is really wonderful. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and interest. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you for being on The Funding Coach. Hope to talk to you soon. That will wrap up this episode of The Funding Coach. Next time, I'll be going a bit deeper on some of the issues that surfaced during this interview. There are a bunch, of course, but I know I'll be talking about imposter syndrome among entrepreneurs, the B Corporation phenomenon, and impact investors. Make sure you head on over to fourcolorsofmoney.com, where I've included some links and resources related to today's show. You can leave your thoughts there about Margot and her funding challenge, or you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. As you're probably aware, ratings and reviews make or break podcasts. So if you want to make sure you hear more about real businesses with real funding challenges, let the whole world know you want to hear more over at iTunes. I very much appreciate you listening, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon here on The Funding Coach.